Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. We're going to turn to our Bibles. We're going to be in Revelation, one, one verse in Revelation 19, and then the rest of it will be chapter 20. And we're in the last few stages of the book of Revelation. And eventually, uh, next few weeks, we'll get into what the New Jerusalem looks like, what heaven looks like, and what's going on there. But today, we're focusing in on the interval. It's called the 75-day interval, and that's between the second coming and then the time of the millennial kingdom that lasts for a thousand years. There's a lot of things that need to happen during that period of time. And the idea is Christ is cleaning house, and what he is doing is he's creating the environment necessary to meet the demands of the new reality. And that goes to our title of today's message, The Demands of the New Reality. So let me give you a kind of an an understanding of what he's trying to do. Let me give you an aeronautics type of understanding. If you were to tell, uh, if you were, let's say you're a general in the, the Army or Navy or whatever, and you went to Boeing or whatever and said, hey, we need a new aircraft, and here's the things we need for it. We need it to go 40,000 feet. We need to fly over the North Pole. We need to go into desert area where it's really hot. And then we need it to go this fast and that speed. And we need the, the integrity of the, the aircraft to be like this. And the engineers at Boeing would sit down with you and design what you need to meet the demands of what, you, uh, what is required for that aircraft. And we would go through the whole process with Boeing, and eventually they would produce an airplane for us, militarily-wise, where we could fly to meet all those demands. And if you understand that, that that's likened to what Jesus is doing right now in the interval period. He is taking that which was ruined by man, by Satan, by the demonic hordes, and he is now reversing the curse on the planet, and he is... He is basically creating an environment that is suitable for a kingdom of righteousness. And in order to do that, you've got to get rid of a lot of stuff in the environment. So he's got to get rid of the Antichrist. He's got to get rid of the false prophets. He's got to get rid of Satan. He's got to clean up the environment because if it's an environment of righteousness which we have never really seen in our lifetimes, a complete environment of righteousness, you have to get rid of, rid of all deception and all lies. It has to be an environment of integrity. And that's what we're going to take away from this passage and in studying this, because it it, it's a lot of things it throws at you. The takeaway then is this. You and I are not in the kingdom. We understand that. The kingdom's future. We look forward to that one day of living in that kind of environment where there's no lies. And in our own life, you can live two ways. You can live the way the world lives, and the way the world lives, all you have to do is turn on the news and see what's going on there and all the lies, deception that's happening. You see that on the news, a lot of the news programs are lying about what's going on in the world. And so there's a lot of deception, a lot of untruth, especially in the the races that we see with politicians, a lot of lying. We're used to that environment. Because it's an environment that we see a lot. But then there's what's called the abundant life. There's the life that Jesus says, the truth will set you free life. 
And in that realm that we can experience, you have to have complete integrity to be in that realm. If you choose to live a life that there's deception in it, you're in denial, rationalization of things, self-will, blindness towards what you're doing and stuff like that, then fine, you'll stay in the realm of the world because that's how they play the game. But if you say, no, I want to live that abundant life, I want to be set free, like the kingdom is, it's just full of integrity, there's no deceptions, no lying. In order to experience that abundant life, you have to have integrity. And integrity means more than just you simply telling the truth. It's way more than that. It's a whole character that goes on. And here's the deal. In order to meet the demands of the abundant life, you have to have integrity. If you keep things back from Jesus, you keep things locked in the closet, and you don't want him to deal with it, because he's saying, look, I want you to open this door, and we want to deal with it, you will stay in another realm. You will stay out of the abundant life. You will stay out of the realm where truth sets you free, because you're dealing in the world's realm. The God of this world controls things. And the God of this world is a liar. And so you end up trafficking in his area. And you can all of a sudden get get used to living in that, that kind of world, but you'll never get to that abundant life. Integrity is central. What do you mean? Well, integrity is, the implication is you won't hide from Jesus. The blind spots in your life will start coming out. You'll start being able to spiritually see. And really what will happen is, you'll really start to grow. That's the key in integrity. See, if you're not seeing any growth in your life and you're like, man, I'm sputtering, I'm stuck, I don't know what's going on, it's because you're lacking integrity. And it's like, well, I tell the truth. Yeah, that's not what I'm talking about. Integrity about yourself. Are you really growing? Are you doing everything to grow? Are you giving up those things that are preventing the growth? And that's what integrity comes down to. We'll talk a lot more in the application about that. I want to flush that out. But that's the principal application of this. We get our cue from Christ. If he's creating an environment of integrity by getting rid of lies and deception, then that's our cue for the abundant life. So that's what we're going to take away. But anyway, let's then go into the text. Let's parse it out. There's some complications here we have to look at. And then we'll work to the application at the end. Start in Revelation 19, verse 20, and we'll see the first thing he starts doing to create this new environment. He goes, then the beast was captured, obviously the Antichrist, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Now, we're after the second coming, Christ is here on earth, And he is doing battle, and one of the first things he does is he captures the Antichrist and the false prophet, and they're killed. We looked at this a couple weeks ago, and in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, we see that he kills the Antichrist. And it's assumed he kills the false prophet along with him. And then when you look at Isaiah 14, 9 through 21, we see the Antichrist descent into hell... And we see what they say to him as they greet him as he goes into hell. So we see that he was killed. And uh, really what we're dealing with then at this point now, after the second coming, is a 75-day interval. And let me uh, bring your attention to this. In your bulletin, you should have a two-page insert, one on the back called Resurrection, the other one's called the 75-day interval. This is not studied 
a lot, but it's important to understand. This is called the cleanup, basically. We get the 75-day interval from Daniel, and here's what your chart should look like. And you can see, before the Messianic kingdom starts, there's got to be all these things that Jesus does to clean the environment up. We have the removal of the abomination of desolation in the temple. Jesus will actually create a new millennial temple that he will sit in. We'll talk about the Antichrist that gets resurrected, and then the Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. We'll talk about that today. We'll see the binding of Satan today. Then you have the judgment of the living Gentiles, the, the sheep and goat judgment, which we won't touch because that's in Matthew 25. We'll see the resurrection of the Old Testament saints, resurrection of tribulation saints, and then we'll see the marriage feast of the Lamb in the 75-day interval. But there's a lot that goes on, and this all has to happen before the kingdom starts. So if you're going to create an environment of integrity, all of these things have to be done. So where do we get the 75-day interval? Where do we get this concept from? We get it from Daniel. Let me show you in Daniel real quick where we get the idea. Daniel chapter 12, verse 11 through 2. And from the time that daily sacrifice is taken away, it's talking about the tribulation, the abomination of desolation is set up. There shall be 1,290 days. And blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. So Daniel adds some days to the end of the tribulation. So the tribulation is seven years. It's uh, split in half by 1,260 days, three and a half years, three and a half years. So that gives you seven lunar uh, prophetic years. And then as you can see with Daniel, he adds an additional 30 days. He says 1290. And then in the second part of the verse, he adds an additional 45 days, which gives you 75. So apparently that's the time it takes Messiah to clean house, 75 days. Okay, so what you're going to see now with the rest of the text is how he goes about doing it. Let's go back to the text and it says, these two, referring to the Antichrist and the false prophet, were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. Now, wait a second. That's, John is jumping a little bit, and we have to understand what's happened here. Like I said, he kills the Antichrist, and it's assumed he kills the false prophet, and they're thrown into hell. Okay, Now, hell is different than the lake of fire. But in this text, these two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. So what has happened, and it's assumed by theologians that he kills them. Isaiah says he goes to hell, but then at, in the 75-day interval, Christ resurrects the Antichrist and the false prophet, and then he casts them into the lake of fire, which is different than hell. The lake of fire is separate than the pit. The pit is in planet Earth. The lake of fire, we don't know where the lake of fire is, by the way. Maybe another dimension. I don't know. It's not in the center of the earth like we call hell is. It's a different, that's the final place. So it's assumed then that Christ resurrects them. Now here's the deal. There is a resurrection of the damned. There's a resurrection of the unrighteous. Now they're not given glorified bodies, so don't make that mistake. But they are given a body that they will exist in, that their soul will come back into, that will exist in the lake of fire forever and that body that they're in will experience the burning aspect of being in the lake of fire forever without end it's not a pretty picture we'll look at the lake of fire next week but at the core root of this this is why jesus said the worm doesn't die and the idea is their body will be burned 
but not consumed. And that's an awful thought. But don't think it's because they don't deserve it. They do. And people send themselves there. So anyway, the Antichrist and the false prophet are immediately cast into the lake of fire and basically rendered inoperative for forever, for all eternity. If you have a question of where the demons are at, they're bound in two locations on planet Earth, at the old site of Babylon and Edom. I don't have the time to flush that out, but they're located in two sites, bound for a thousand years. Now, what's going on here? He's cleaning house. The false prophet is a liar. The Antichrist is a liar. They have no integrity. They've been, they're, they've been a counterfeit to the Trinity. So now he's saying, to have the Messianic kingdom, I've got to get rid of these people. And he does. Then he's got to get rid of Satan. Now we jump to verse 1 of chapter 20. And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. Now this is interesting. This, I, this angel that you see here in the text is a common angel. It's, uh, when you see just the word messenger or angel... It is the lowest of the ranks of the angelic order, with cherubim and then seraphim being higher than a, just a regular angel. So it's just a regular angel, lowest rung on the pole, so to speak. And notice that he is given a key, which means authority, and he's got a chain, which means he's going to use this to bind Satan with and, to, and bind him in what's called the bottomless pit in the center of the earth. Now, this is notable. This is a low-ranking angel coming in God's power, coming in God's authority to bind the highest-ranked angel ever to exist. Satan was a cherub. He was a guardian of one of the, a, a spot on the throne. In fact, he was the the canopy cherub. Remember how there's four cherubs on each side of God's throne. He was the canopy cherub. He was above the throne. And he had the highest rank. He was the most, or is the most powerful, the most beautiful, the most intelligent, the most wise angels to ever be in, been created. And now a lowly little angel, the lowest one on the totem pole, so to speak, is coming to bind the most powerful angel to ever exist. That's what you want to see. And how can he do this? Because he's been given the authority and power from God to do this. And he's going to bind Satan in this pit. Anyway, verse 2 says this. He laid hold of the dragon. And you're going to see all of Satan's names right here. When you see the word dragon in reference to Satan, it has to do with his destruction, that he's a murderer. That he destroys things like a dragon would. And it's kind of a symbolic name for him. So anyway, and then he's called the serpent of old. That's a direct reference to Genesis. That's a reference to how he tempted Eve. And it's given you another aspect. He's not only a destroyer, he's a tempter. Okay? And then it says, who is the devil and Satan? So the devil means accuser or slanderer or liar. And then the word Satan means adversary. He's God's adversary and our adversary. So all four names are given a full-orbed picture of who this cherub that fell has turned into. He's a, he's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's a destroyer. 
and he's an accuser, and he's an adversary, all those things. And what God is showing us is, is that before this kingdom starts, I have to get rid of him. Now, one of the things about God is he doesn't annihilate people. He doesn't annihilate his creation. He will then confine them. God doesn't perform euthanasia, so to speak, on his own creatures. Even Satan will be allowed to continue to exist for all eternity, but he will be captive. So for a thousand years, he's going to be bound in this place. And so it says this, and he bound him for a thousand years. That's how long the millennial kingdom will last. And he cast him into the bottomless pit, shut him up, and set a seal on him. So again, if you see uh, like planet Earth, we obviously know from geology what the planet looks like. It has a core in the middle. Well, spiritually, in the middle of the planet is the bottomless pit. The reason it's called bottomless, as you can see with the core, because the earth is round, that once he's put in the core of the earth or the, the bottomless pit, in a circular confined area, all that you have above you is a ceiling. No matter what direction you go, it's a ceiling. And so that's why it's called bottomless. There's no bottom to it because everything in a circle or a, or a globe type of confinement has a ceiling. And so he's confined there for, for 1,000 years. The bottomless pit is temporary confinement. Not demons that get out of control and do things that they shouldn't be doing without God's permission, obviously, are sent to this place of temporary confinement. There's another place in center, in center of the earth called Tartarus, and that's where the angels who send in Genesis 6 are there, and they're permanently confined until the great white throne judgment. So then, the point is, he's sent to this bottomless pit called the Abuso, because the environment has to have integrity and there cannot be any deception. Okay, so let's move on. So that he should deceive the nations no more till a thousand years were finished. And the idea is that what's been happening currently since Adam and Eve is Satan has been deceiving mankind. And he has done a very good job of deceiving mankind. Satan can... He can't operate in the realm of truth because he's a liar. So when he usurped Adam and Eve and took their authority away, he became what's called the God of this world. And because there's no truth found in him, he created a world system that's built on lies, built on the counterfeit. And so he convinces people that his way of doing things is the right way, but really it's a lie. So just give you a modern day example, you see what's happening in politics, that everything that you, you hear a politician say is not on the up and up. They're lying. They're doing things to keep their positions. So you see that in politics. And then you see this in even Christianity, that what's happening in Christianity is just massive deception. For instance, I was listening to a gal that, that came out of the occult lifestyle and uh, she was a Christian and then lost her way. And then she came back and she got into psychics. She got into yoga. She got into Reiki. She was a Reiki master and all this other junk that she had gotten involved in. And um, now she's coming back as a Christian warning people of these practices. So, for instance, her big thing was warning people of the danger of yoga. And the show went on to say that it's amazing that you have churches who are letting their congregations practice yoga 
Yoga means yoking to the Hindu god, and every position in yoga is a position of worship to these Hindu gods. And even the yoga masters, she said, teach that if you just keep practicing enough, you'll get in touch with that kundalini spirit, that serpent spirit. Serpent, isn't that interesting? And eventually you'll tap into that. And she was, again, putting that warning out. And so the idea in the show was, what she was saying is, I cannot believe Christians would put themselves in a position to practice yoga, which is a Hindu practice. But again, what is this all about? Deception. They're deceived to think that that's okay. And that's what Satan is doing to the church. So he's got to get removed because you can't have that going on in the kingdom where Jesus is ruling and reigning. Anyway, it goes this way. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Now, that should disturb everybody who reads that. He must? I thought, let's just throw, put him in there and throw away the key. But it says he must be released. The idea in the Greek is the word day. D-E-I. It means there's a moral necessity to let him out. Moral necessity? Yes. Not for him, but for the inhabitants of the kingdom. There's a moral necessity. So now then John switches gears, and he's going to say, I'm going to come back to that. And then he switches gears, and he's going to show you the inhabitants of the kingdom. So we go to verse 4. He switches gears. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. By the way, that's you and I right there. That's the church. The fact that this group of people is on thrones has to do with the church being judged and given her position of rulership. And remember, the promise to the church is that the church rules and reigns and has judgment during the kingdom age. That's what we do. But again, let me put the caveat. It's a promise to the overcomers of the church. Not every believer in the church will rule and reign. Only overcomers, the term overcomer John uses in chapter 2 and 3 to show you only the believers who overcome. Okay, so here's the question. What do these believers overcome that get to rule and reign in the millennial kingdom? Because I can tell you right now, I don't want to be cleaning toilets for a thousand years. I can just tell you that right now. So I really want to know, how do you become an overcomer? I don't want to be the lowest man on the totem pole because I want to be rewarded for what I do here. And so, okay, what is it? Let me make a few comments about this. Believers who endure trials and tribulations throughout their life and suffer properly. Because a believer can suffer, but not suffer properly. They can spin out, get bitter, get angry and mad at everybody, and spin out because of suffering. And then you have those believers that you're aware of that, that suffer whatever trial they're going through, and they take the grace and the mercy, and they endure patiently through it. That's who gets to rule and reign. The second believer is those who obey, not just obey a few things, but at the general course of their life is symbolized by obedience to the Messiah. 
Those other believers who are faithful in their time, talent, and treasure, all the gifts that God has given them, they make use of it. They don't go and bury their talent. They use it for the Lord, not for themselves, for the Lord. Those rule and reign. Those believers who also overcome the Jezebel spirit. What the Jezebel spirit is, it's the spirit of spiritual adultery, idolatry, sexual immorality, and those who don't apostatize. If you apostatize, you lose. You will not get to rule and reign. You'll be in the kingdom, but you won't rule and reign. So the idea is keeping doctrinally pure. Those who keep doctrinally pure get to rule and reign. And lastly, believers who overcome the Laodicean mindset get to rule and reign. What do you mean? What is the Laodicean mindset? It's the mindset of the Laodicean church, take it or leave it, apathetic towards the things of God, more interested in worldly pursuits, spiritually blind, naked because they're worldly, they become friends with the world. And basically the idea, remember Jesus said, you're neither hot nor cold, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. It's the idea that you're useless to me. Now they're saved, they've got their fire insurance, but they're useless. That kind of believer doesn't rule and reign. So I wanted to make that caveat. So we're there, that is the sign of an overcomer is that they rule and reign. Then he says, he moves on in the text, Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now these are the tribulation saints that were killed and martyred, and they're resurrected as well. Now we've experienced our resurrection at the rapture. They experience it at the second coming. They're made alive, resurrected, and they also will rule and reign. One thing that John doesn't note, um, because he's not dealing with it, he's dealing with more of the tribulation, the Old Testament saints are resurrected at this time as well. In fact, a lot of theologians put the resurrection of the Old Testament saints prior to the tribulation saints. So Moses, Daniel, David, all of them are resurrected, and then, all, then comes the tribulation saints. It could happen at the same time. We're not quite sure. We just know it happens at the second coming. That being the case, you have all of the dead of righteousness have been resurrected. And basically what you want to keep in mind in the kingdom, and this gets a little tough. In the kingdom, you have two classes of people. You have mortals who lived through the tribulation, Jew and Gentile, that made it through alive. And and if they made it through alive and passed the sheep and goat judgment, then they were saved. And they go into the kingdom in their mortal bodies. They will populate the planet. They will have babies and produce generations to fill the kingdom. The other group is people like us. We will be immortal. We will be glorified. So there's two classes of humans. And then we will have access back and forth between earth and the new Jerusalem. And people say, well, how do we get there? Well, you're probably going to be able to move like an angel and fly and go back and forth between this planet and the new Jerusalem. That's the best we can come up with because you're glorified. You have a different body. It's not a body that's bound by the temporal laws that are placed in the universe. So just imagine it's a totally different time period. But you have two classes of people. And why is that necessary? And this is important. If our task is to rule and reign with Christ, 
then we have to be glorified. Because if it's a time where there's all, that, all there is is righteousness and truth, your governors, your mayors, your princes, your kings, all have to be thoroughly righteous. So it totally makes sense that if you're going to have a kingdom, then your rulers have to be glorified. So that you and I, if we were ruling and reigning, we can never be bribed. We can never be tempted by evil. We would only have righteousness in us, which makes the idyllic conditions possible. Can you imagine a world where all of the leaders, all of the rulers, all of the mayors, all of the governors are 100% righteous? That's amazing to think about it. We see how corrupt our politicians are. Our rulers are all being bought off, bribed, this and that. Not in that day. And so it makes total sense why Jesus would have mortals and immortals living together. And guess what? You and I rule over the mortals. They, they, they come under us at that point in time. And so, again, it's a, a, a pristine environment. Let's go back to the text now. But the rest of the dead, that's the unrighteous, the damned, did not live again until the thousand years were finished because they were going to be, they're going to be judged at the great white throne judgment. We'll look at that next week. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. Second death is being separated from God in, in the lake of fire. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, what I want you to do is turn to your other side of their bulleted insert, and I want you to see this about the resurrection. There are two categories of resurrection, and the first one you can see is about all believers, but according to the Apostle Paul, it comes in stages, and he uses a military term to get an idea of troops marching in order and in ranks, and basically what we see from all the scriptures is the first resurrection is a category of all believers, but it comes in stages. The first fruits, obviously, is Jesus, right? Second one, rapture of the church, the remnants taken away, and, and, and are resurrected at that point in time. We're given our glorified bodies before the tribulation. Then in the middle of the tribulation, the two witnesses are killed by the Antichrist. They're resurrected, so they're part of the first resurrection. And then like right, we're seeing now, the Old Testament saints are resurrected, and then the tribulation saints are resurrected after the second coming. Once the tribulation saints and the Old Testament saints are resurrected, that ends the category of the first resurrection. There are no more resurrections of the righteous at that point in time. If you go to what's called the second resurrection, that's the resurrection of non-believers, of the damned, of the unregenerate. And there's only two stages. The first stage Antichrist, false prophet, but they're cast into the lake of fire a thousand years before everyone else. A thousand years before. And then at the great white throne judgment, you have the, all of the unrighteous resurrected at that point in time. And then they go to the great white throne judgment and are judged for how severe their hell will be. We'll get into that next week. That's why John says, blessed is he who takes part in the first resurrection. If you're in that category, that means you're a believer. 
And that's why it's important to understand the different stages. Otherwise, you, it'll get real confusing if you mix the stages up. Okay. Now we go back to verse 7. He switches gears again to pick up the story with Satan. Now, when the thousand years have expired, the end of the millennium, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out, there's that word deceive, to deceive the nations or the Gentiles which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. And that passage right there, verse 7 and 8, it's got to be the most perplexing passage one can imagine once you get your arms wrapped around it. Let me parse it out and let me show you what I'm talking about. This is why it's morally necessary that Satan is released. To deceive the nations? Yeah, the Gentile nations. What, 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 what do you mean, man? Okay, let me unpack this a little bit. Like I said, mortals who live through the tribulation and are believers will go into the kingdom. Mortals. Jew and Gentile. The new covenant then promises, once that Israel has made their decision for Messiah, that no Jew will ever not believe in Messiah throughout the whole thousand years. Every Jew will come to faith in Messiah. The only exceptions are the Gentiles. The Gentiles that make it through, they're believers, but they'll have babies. And those kids will grow up in an environment of idyllic conditions, paradise on earth. No needs, no poverty, nothing. Jesus rules and reigns from Jerusalem in his Shekinah glory. He's God. There's no cult. There's no deception. There's no Satan. It's an idyllic environment. Okay. The stipulations in the kingdom is this. That these Gentiles, these babies that grow up, they have a hundred years to make their decision for Messiah according to Isaiah 65. If they do not make their decision to accept Jesus as Messiah, they die at a hundred years old. The kingdom then is a thousand years. If you do the math, you're going 10 generations. Okay? And then to the 10th generation, Satan is allowed to be released on the 10th generation of Gentiles. Again, this is not referring to Israel because Israel's fine and dandy. They don't have a problem at this point in time. It's the Gentiles. And the reason he is released is to test the hearts of the Gentiles. To show you and I, and the whole angelic world, that I can give man the most idyllic conditions he could possibly want. I can be ruling and reigning in Jerusalem. They can see my Shekinah glory. Everyone will have plenty to eat, plenty of provision. It's Eden return. The temperature is 72 degrees all over the planet. The water canopy has been restored. Everything is idyllic. There's no evil. There's no unrighteousness. Everything is perfect. And I'm going to show you by using Satan that even in a perfect condition that man will rebel against me. You got to be kidding me. Yeah. This is why the passages in the Old Testament say, the heart of man is desperately wicked, and who can understand it? This idea from the liberal left, the Marxists in our world that say, well, if you just put man and give him a good environment, he wouldn't do bad things. Liar! That's what they say, right? 
If you just give them free health care, free education, free this, free that, then they won't do criminal activity. Baloney. Because you're going to watch an idyllic condition and them turn all criminal in an instant the minute Satan's released. And you say, well, what's the deal? Why does it take Satan to be released? Because it's a rod of iron rule. And a rod of iron rule means this, that Jesus is in absolute authority. And that means if any joker wants to get out of hand, he puts them down immediately. There is no rebellion. There is no gay parades or gay marches or anything like that. There is nothing like that. Everything is holy and righteous. So these people have never been outwardly able to do anything. It's only been in here. And he wants to show you and I and everybody in the whole cosmos what's inside the human heart. That without him, man will become a criminal. Man is polluted. Man has a sin nature and will do bad things if he doesn't get saved. If he doesn't seek God, he will go into that criminal element, so to speak. And what I mean by criminal, be a criminal to God. Be in rebellion towards God. Yet, notice this, he uses the term, they come from all four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Why would he use the term Gog and Magog? That's already happened in the past. Why would John throw that term up? Well, it's simple. He's using Jewish interpretation of prophecy. And what we call this is a literal plus application. The Jewish phrase for this is a drosh. D-R-A-S-H, a drosh. And he's saying it's a literal plus application. What, he, what I mean by this is, is this. It has a point of similarity to what happened of Gog of Magog earlier in history. And what's the point of similarity? It's the attack on Israel. That's the point of similarity. Now, this is different because it's not coming out from Russia and Iran and Syria. It's coming from all four, four corners of the earth because what, where do they go? They're gathering together to battle, whose number is in the sand and the sea. And in the rest of the text, it says, And they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. They are attacking Israel. That's the point of similarity. That why he throws in Gog of Magog. Now, this is amazing. And if you really meditate on this and think about this, you're thinking, wow. Idyllic conditions and they still rebel against Jesus? Yeah. And when you start thinking about that, then really what is man's only solution? Man's only solution is to be born again. That's it. That's been the message of the Bible. You must be born again. Because if you're not, you will eventually rebel and get so hard of a heart that you will actually shake your fist and try to attack God. That's what they're doing. They, they attack Israel, and they're attacking Jesus. Imagine Jesus being on the throne in Jerusalem, in his Shekinah, and they're saying, we're going to go after him. What are you, nuts? Yes, that's the idea. Remember I told you that, 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 that Satan and, and the Antichrist and the false prophet think they're going to attack Jesus, and he just dismantles them in an instant? That's the same mentality of these people. What it is, is they're doing outward conformity, but their hearts are not changed. 
It's kind of like the little girl that was riding with her mom. Remember in those days where no one wore seatbelts and they didn't have a seatbelt law? Did your mom or dad, uh, when you were riding in the front seat, put their arm across you to hold you back when they had to stop quick? And they would always do that. And like kids were standing in the front seat. They weren't even sitting down. They were just standing up. You remember that? Some people would actually get in. I would get in the back of, uh, and I'd lay across the top of uh, the back seat window. You ever done that? Man, I was flying, man. I was awesome. You can't do that now, right? As a kid, you'd be all over the car. There's no seatbelt laws. And your, your parents would always do this, right? Well, this one little girl was, was in, in the car with her mom, and she kept standing up in the front seat. And her mom says, you sit down. If, if, I, I, if, if I have to keep telling you to sit down because you're going to go through this window, if I have to keep telling you to sit down, I'm going to spank you. And so the, the, the girl finally just sat down, and the mom's driving and, and still going along. And the little girl goes, Mommy? And she goes, What? She goes, I'm still standing on the inside. <laughs> yeah, that's what we're talking about. The rebellion may not be outwardly, but Jesus is showing it's still inwardly, and I'll show it by letting Satan out. That's why he morally must be let out. This is the question of what people ask. Why doesn't God just get rid of the devil? Why doesn't he just eliminate him? Why, does we, why do we have to be in a spiritual battle with demons and, and, and Satan? He wants to show that if you put a person with a tempter, it actually reveals the human heart. Adam and Eve have a te- had a tempter, Right? And it revealed that even without a sin nature, they decided to rebel. Well, how does God take care of this? Pretty simple. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Easy. No problem. Next. I mean, it's just like, what are they thinking? They're dealing with God, right? I mean, he just uh, totally eliminates them. Verse 10. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And you can't get past the Greek. I don't care what the Jehovah Witnesses say. I don't care what the Seventh-day Adventists say. Forever and ever is used 13 times. And it means without end. And he will finally be cast into the lake of fire. And we will see him no more forever. And we'll get into this next week. But the idea of, of the lake of fire being a place of torment forever, it's really difficult to get our arms around. But it's real and it's, it's true. It is forever. Well, then at that point, once it's all done and the kingdom's over and it's win a thousand years, according to the Apostle Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 15, the Son, Jesus, hands back all authority and power back to the Father and we go into eternity. And we're going to watch eternity uh, in the next few weeks and all that, uh, that comes into play in that. But that's the end of the kingdom. There's more about the kingdom, but we don't have time to get into that because that's all encapsulated into the Old Testament. And we're in the book of Revelation, so we're only dealing with what we've got to deal with. What's the application before we wrap things up? The application is this. Well, obviously, the demands of the millennial reign of Christ demand that deception be removed, that lies be removed. And so the three big instigators, the false prophet, the devil, and the Antichrist, are completely removed from the environment. You have righteous rulers ruling over the environment, right? So that comes to us. Integrity. If we want to live this abundant life, we have to have integrity. And you're like, okay, what does that mean? Let me flush it out. I have six points I want to give you, okay? You can write them down or whatnot. I'll email them to you if you want them. But it starts with this. Number one, 
If you're going to have integrity in the realm of the abundant life, to be really set free, the first thing you have to have is you have to have the ability to be oriented toward the truth, which leads to seeing, finding, and operating in reality, uncovering and working through blind spots regarding themselves or others or ourselves and others. Well, what do you mean? Let's let's say on one real quick. Oriented toward the truth is, uh, is a matter of integrity, which means that in order to be in the reality of where the abundant life is, my life has got to be directed towards that. I have to be oriented towards that. If I'm not oriented, if I'm in denial, if I, I, I refuse to come to the knowledge of the truth in my own personal life, you will stay out of reality and people won't connect to you because you're like, you're, when people get close to you, you're going to say, hey man, that, that person's a little weird. Yeah, I know, because they're not in reality. And you'll start finding people like that. If you get into the abundant life and you get set free, guess what happens? Whoo! You start seeing things. You not only see yourself, but you start seeing others. You see others who are in denial. You see others who are rationalizing their blindness and stuff. It's weird. It's really weird, but it's real. It's a real place to be. And, 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 and if you get oriented to the truth, you can make good decisions. You'll make good alliances You'll be trusting in your relationships. And you won't have to spend time in that alternative reality, in that alternative universe, so that you can feel good about yourself. Number two, the ability to be growth-oriented, which leads to spiritual maturity, is about integrity. If you're going to experience the abundant life, you have to grow. I, I know that goes without saying, but here's the deal. Growth, don't get, me, don't, go, don't get this wrong. Growth is not the accumulation of knowledge. And knowledge is important, and you've got to have knowledge, no doubt about that. But if you just leave it at the knowledge level, and you can count how many angels dance on the head of a pin, it does you no good. People have told me, Brandon, I've memorized the entire book of Leviticus. Really? Leviticus? Wow, I would have picked an easier book than Leviticus, not that one. I mean, it's a good book and all, but that's a real hard one to memorize. Yeah, I, 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 I did it. And, and, then, and then without biblical grounds, they go and divorce their spouse. And I'm thinking, what? What good did it do you to memorize Leviticus and have all these facts in your head and you go out and do something unbiblical? I don't get that. See, that's the disconnect. That's the disconnect. Knowledge does not equate into spiritual maturity. That's called compartmentalizing your Christianity. What you do on Sunday is different than what you do during the week. Three, aspects of having integrity in our character, the ability to connect authentically to others, which leads to trust, dependability, and vulnerability. That's what integrity is about. If I'm going to live the abundant life, I have to connect properly. I have to have good connections. People have to trust me. I can't be dealing with people in deceptive ways. Four, the ability to embrace, engage, and deal with trials, setbacks, losses, failures, problem people, which leads to ending problems and or resolving them. Let me ask you this. When you went to high school or college, did anyone ever teach you how to lose good? They didn't, did they? No one taught you, hey, we're going to lose with class, right? We're going to learn how to regroup here. We're going to learn how to recover. No one taught you that. 
It was win at all costs, right? One of the things you'll have to find out in Christianity is because this world is not our home and this environment is not our home, that you're going to have a lot of trials, setbacks, losses, failures, and your ability to handle them with integrity will be the key. If you do not know how to recover, if you do not know how to cope, if you do not know how to lose, especially in people you invest in, you will invest in people in your Christianity who will stab you right in the back. And they won't care. They will walk away and never talk to you again. And you will have extended grace, mercy, all the help, and they still will walk away from you. How are you going to handle that one? Because it's coming. If it hasn't hit you yet, it's coming. Other believers will burn you. And if you haven't learned how to cope with that, how to regroup, how to keep going, it'll stop you in your tracks and you will stop this whole thing of integrity. What does integrity mean? I keep serving despite how people treat me. Number five. The ability to transcend our own interests and give ourselves to the true purpose in life, which leads to serving others and God. Integrity in your Christian walk to live that abundant life, you have to die to self, and you have to start living for him and living for his purposes. If you're here thinking that you're going to build your kingdom, you're on the wrong train. You're completely off the tracks. If this is not about you, and you have to learn that pretty quick in Christianity in order to get to that abundant life, that you need to be on the train with him, that he's going to take you where he wants you to go, and you're going to do what he wants you to do. And that's, that's, a, that's just a matter of integrity. It's not about us. And you have to get rid of that narcissistic attitude of like, well, what, you know, what, 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 what do I get out of this? I don't know. There's other Christians around the world that are making bricks 12 hours a day, and they're doing fine. I mean, seriously, man, you really have to put some perspective on it. It's a hard one. And six, the ability to serve in a way that produces good outcomes, gets results, finishes well, which leads to using the time, talent, and treasures of the Lord, for the Lord's purposes for our lives. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying, like the world says, that you have to be performance-oriented. I'm not saying that at all. It's not about that. What, what I'm trying to say in this and the application is your Christianity should produce results. It should. That's what integrity is about. But if you look at your own Christianity and your walk and you're like, I don't know what, what's happening to my life. My, actually, my life's spinning out. I'm losing things. Then your Christianity, so to speak, is not working because you're not in discipleship. You don't have integrity because you're not doing the things you need to be doing. Now, I'm only going to tell you this because that's how you get to the other place. That's how you get to the abundant life is you should see progress in your walk. Now, I'm not saying like you're going to be a dynamo overnight, that you're going to be spiritually mature overnight, but you got to at least be able to say, hey, I'm better than I was five years ago, or I'm better than I was a year ago. I'm in a better place now. But if you're not, you're actually, if you're saying, well, I'm just maintaining, Brandon. I'm just good. I got a lot going on in my life. I'm just maintaining. By the way, if you simply decide to maintain, the writer of Hebrews says you'll go backwards. 
You don't get to stay at the place you got. You have to keep going forward. If don't, you just start moving back. That's what's integrity. That's what the kingdom looks like. You can experience a portion of that kingdom, so to speak, with the abundant life. Let me show you this. Have you ever seen this in the skies? If you ever look in the sky, look at today. Look in the sky, and you'll see these white lines way up in the sky, and they're called contrails. You can look at it any time of the day, and you'll see them way up in the sky. There's two white lines, and they're all crisscrossing above the atmosphere. Sometimes they're at 35,000. Sometimes they're at 40,000. You ever see contrails? They're coming from planes that are up there in the sky. And you can definitely tell the direction of the contrails and where they're going. And the contrails happen at high altitudes, low humidity sometimes. And the exhaust from the jet is, is pumping that out with little particles. It mixes with the particles, and it creates like this cloud formation that is coming from the airplane. And you can sometimes tell by the contrails what kind of weather you're going to have based on humidity levels. Anyway, what's the point? You always know where the contrails came from and where they're going. Believe it or not, our integrity and how we're running our Christian life is for all to see. You are leading, leaving contrails about where you've come from and where you're going right in front of everybody. Let me tell you a secret. Everybody sees your contrails. You think that they don't, but they do. They see where you came from, and they see where you're going. And if you don't think that, you're in denial. Everyone sees where you're going. Once you get into the abundant life, you see people whose contrails have switched directions and are now going in the right direction. Their contrails will tell you that they made a switch. But if you are in the abundant life, you will also be able to see those who are still going in that same direction, and they haven't really came out of it. Ask yourself this question. When we look at the level of integrity that Jesus is cleaning house, man, he's getting rid of all kinds of stuff out of the environment to make sure there's an environment of integrity. Have you done enough cleaning of your house so that you have now a structure of integrity that now changes your contrails? Only you can answer that one. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.